I'm always amazed at how quickly romantic love can fade, uh, both in the dating world and in the marriage world. Uh, and you just never would have believed that it happened to you. There was a young couple that uh, uh, he was excited about being married, and uh, they were married a few years, and he finally discovered that his wife had been having an affair for several months. And he, was just, he was devastated by this. And uh, she was not going to give up her lover. Uh, they had purchased a house, which he really enjoyed the house. Um, the state they lived in, there was, uh, it was, uh, he was going to end up paying a lot of money uh, even though uh, she's the one that had an affair. And there was a large divorce settlement. He was going to have to pony up. And she got the house. So um, she'd moved in with her boyfriend in the apartment. And they were waiting until um, he, the, he, the, the ex-husband was going to be moving out of the house. And on the last day, he'd, he'd had all the, the movers come and load up the truck. And on the last day, he was feeling really melancholy about all this. And he... There was nothing left in the house, but he, he decided to have sort of one last dinner in the house. And so he went to the store and he, he bought a pound of shrimp, some caviar, three little cans of sardines, a bottle of wine, sat down at the kitchen table, lit a couple of candles, and just sort of sat there reminiscing about their few years together. He only ate about 10% of what he'd purchased, and then he went about his work. He went through the house and took down every curtain rod, because the curtains were still there and the curtain rod, and opened up the end of every curtain rod. And inside the curtain rod, put leftover shrimp, caviar, and sardines. Some of you are liking this idea. We got some new, new note-takers in the group. <laughs> I remember that one. What did you get from the retreat? Can't wait to get married if my wife ever... <laughs> he finished the whole thing packed up the food took his candles nothing was left except the, uh, the, the uh, curtains and curtain rod and he left well the next day the new moving van came up and his ex-wife and boyfriend came and they were just so excited that, that they got the house so the movers are moving everything into the house, and they're just, just gleeful about this. And after a couple days, they notice this strange aroma in the house. They're kind of like, what in the world is this? And so they began to try to do something about it. They washed walls, and they uh, uh, steamed the, the carpet. Um, and day after day, it just got progressively worse. They had plumbers come in to check the sewer lines. Uh, they had an extermination company come in and check the vents to see if they're dead rodents. It continued to get worse. They had a contractor come in and take off sheetrock to see if there was some dead rodent somewhere behind the sheetrock. They could not find a thing. It got so bad after a week they decided um, they were going to have to move out. So they put the house up for sale. But every time someone would come over to the house to buy it, the first question they had was, what is wrong with this house? So, of course, nobody would buy it. The house sat for about a week, and it got worse and worse and worse, and finally, their own realtor wouldn't go in the house anymore. Um, so the ex-wife was frantic. What am I going to do? Because um, she was still paying the mortgage for the house, and they were having to pay rent uh, at the apartment until they could move back into the house. Uh, and the, the debt of this was starting to mount up after about even a month. Nobody was going to buy the house. And one day, the ex-husband 
just decided to call his ex-wife just to see how it was going. And she told, of course she knew nothing about this, she told her sad tale of woe to him about this. And uh, I just don't know if anybody's going to be able to buy the house. And he said, well, you know, I have such fond memories of that house. I reminisce a lot about it. And I'd be willing to buy it if the price was right and if we could come to, to lower the divorce settlement. She was so desperate. She said, I'll do that on one condition, is that you buy the house as is today. They agreed on a price at 10% market value. Now, she was mad about that, but at least she realized she's going to get something out of probably it was going to be nothing. So he agreed to it. He signed the papers. And uh, the next day, the, uh, the uh, moving van came over, uh, and, and she was going to be moving all of their stuff and the, the boyfriend, all their stuff, uh, back to another apartment until they could find another place to live. And she was just so infuriated by the whole thing. He was so mad. She got mad at her ex-husband for this. And even though he was sort of bailing her out, he was, it was still so cheap to get this house at 10%. And the, and the divorce settlement was, was ridiculously low. She was so mad. Just revenge just came up within her. And as the guys were finishing loading everything out of the house, she got an idea. She was so mad at her ex-husband. She went to, the, went to the movers and she said, I want you to go back in that house and take every curtain and every curtain rod out of that house. I'm not leaving it for him at all and put it in the truck. I should probably confess this is sin, but I love that story. <laughs> now, I told you something of my childhood last night. Uh, just to kind of give you an idea of, I wonder what kind of, how did those, those painful experiences form Seth? Uh, when I went off to college, of course, I had no idea about identity. I wasn't thinking any about that stuff. I was just kind of going. And uh, it wasn't until uh, I became, the night I became a Christian that I started to see something of what had been going on with my life. Uh, when I went off to college, um, uh, I went to a retreat. I got saved the night, uh, my, middle of my junior year. And one of the precipitating events that night was worship. I looked around the room and I saw all, you know, hundreds of kids singing. Uh, and I looked at their faces. They weren't singing because they had to. They were singing because they wanted to. And what struck me uh, was that there were two things that struck me. One was they had a joy that just seemed to come from the inside out on their countenance. And what struck me was in contrast, my joy was always out there. The next relationship or the next party or the next athletic event uh, or I'm going to be a doctor or I had a car and I had lots of money and lots of friends and funny guy and it could impress the professors. And, and depending on where I was, I was sort of like a chameleon. I could put on any particular mask and costume, wherever I happen to be. That's the first time I really struck me of something, I didn't use the word, but identity. You hear some identities here that I was living. And I just kind of moved from one to the other without even hardly knowing I was doing it. I looked around at the, and so what I, what I thought was, wow, these students seem to have more joy coming from inside of them, and I'm hoping that I'll find joy out there in all these different things and somehow be able to take that and cram it inside and be happy. But it seems so elusive. 
Uh, that night I ended up becoming a Christian. The other thing that I saw in their faces was just this sense of peace that said to me, this is who I am, and I'm okay with that. And I thought, I am everybody but Seth. I am Seth the fun guy, Seth the party guy, Seth the frat guy, Seth the athlete guy, Seth the pre-med guy, Seth the impressed the professor guy. What about Seth? I was dumbfounded by that. It's kind of my first exposure the night I became a Christian to this thing of identity. And one of the particular identities that I, I um, realized that night, and I have fought ever since that night, and I fight this every day, virtually every day, for the last 45 years. There's an identity, something of what Ian mentioned uh, in his testimony. There was an identity somewhere when I went off to college that was sort of framed like this. When I was in junior high, the short kid, the buck teeth, the curly hair, uh, the, the pumpkin on a toothpick, uh, it seemed like, you know, you start, in junior high, you start entering that dancing world, going out, you know, that's back in my generation, dancing, and it's kind of like I was competing against high school boys as a junior higher, and I was just sort of hopelessly outclassed. When I got to high school, it's my, my image of myself was something like I was trying to woo high school juniors and seniors who were being wooed by college freshmen and sophomore, and here I am, a lowly sophomore. That, that's how I saw myself. Now, what happens inside of you when that's one of your identities? Now, I told you I was also a very gifted athlete, and I could do almost anything really, really well in the sports world. Uh, I became very, very competitive in the sports world. Now, when I went off to college, two things, two identities merged into one. Uh, when I went off to college, I finally was five foot 11. Um, the braces and my teeth had done their work. Curly hair was suddenly in. And I, I decided I was going to go away to a school, away from my high school, in the hopes to minimize the number of kids who would also be students that knew me during my high school years. And I remember driving onto campus the first day, and it was almost like a new day has dawned. It's almost, I had this feeling, this is before I became a Christian, a new identity. Nobody knows the loser I was for all those years. The first day of school, it was move-in day. And uh, there were four guys that all met up in our dorm, and we decided that we were going to have a contest. Now, where, where I went to school was at Baylor, and back then there was a curfew for the girls, and weeknights they had to be in their dorm at 11 o'clock. And so the four of us guys decided to have a contest, and the contest was to see how many freshman girls we could meet, and we had to have a name and a phone number for it to count. And off we went on day one of school. And uh, if we had time, I could tell you, um, that uh, that night after the girls were back in dorm, we, we did something really, really stupid that got, me all, that got me put almost on probation before I'd even registered for classes. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but do you hear something in that contest that makes sense out of my story, my pain? I think I finally have what it takes to woo the pretty girl 
didn't have it all these years, but now, watch me. And being a strong, um, competitive fellow, I was also competing with three new friends because I was going to be first. Oh. Now, at the time, you could never have told me that that was my identity and that was what I was doing. Uh, but something of that was going on and something of this relationship getting identity, which I want to talk about today, which Ian alluded to in his testimony, which was certainly true of my testimony, was that the way to really make things happen is to sort of uh, get the girl, or for you ladies to, to finally find Prince Charming or Mr. Right, and that that's really what life is about. That's the place where my deepest needs are met, if I can just find that kind of relationship. Now, as Christians, we think about, uh, sometimes we think, well, what can I trust God for? And most of the time, I think, well, you know, we think, well, I'm trusting God for heaven, I'm trusting God for, for forgiveness of sin, but what I'm really trusting God for is some blessings. What we define as life, this would be life. That's what we're trusting God for. And I think what God says is, well, you know, blessings are nice, but if, if you make blessings central you can expect you're going to run into some brick walls of my making. I am not going to let you run that down and make that be what's most important in your life. Blessings are secondary. The God-centered life is primary. The God-centered life is primary. God's blessings are secondary. When we get that backwards, you can expect that God is going to be disrupting your life. We call this trials or suffering. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, and eternal not just length, but quality, qualitative life. And here he doesn't mean just life as, as living, but, but what we define as fulfillment or happiness or joy. This is the preeminent joy, he's saying, that you'll find Mr. Wright that you'll finally get the pretty girl? That you'll win in your career? No. That you may know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now when I think about this, I think uh, this is really different than how we normally think. And one of the questions that makes me wonder about is, what really is spiritual maturity? And so for the purpose of our weekend, let me define spiritual maturity this way. Trusting Christ, high trust, trusting Christ in the presence of hardship and the absence of blessing. Trusting Christ in the presence, the high presence of suffering or hardship and the absence of blessing. Until the day when there will be a complete absence of hardship and a presence of every blessing that the Father wants to give to us. That's different than how we most, most of us think about maturity. Now, uh, we're going to look at the book of uh, Hosea, just the first few chapters. Uh, and Hosea 1, the book of Hosea is a metaphor about a relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer, and God and the people of the nation. And though... This, the uh, prophets had been speaking to the nation for years. 
the people were, yeah, right, uh-huh, okay, yeah, sure, whatever you say. Yeah. The, 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 the principles, the truths that were espoused, espoused would go in one ear and out the other. And so God in his wisdom decided to tell a story in such a way that the people might identify themselves in the story, here with Gomer, in such a way say, or ask, are we Gomer? Is this us? So Hosea chapter 1, God comes to the prophet Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to get married. Hosea says, great, I want you to marry Gomer. Uh, she's the town prostitute. I, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. Uh, Hosea, do that. I want to tell a story through this. She's the town whore, and everybody knows it. Everybody. Do it. He marries Gomer. And as chapter 1 rolls out, you find out that Gomer becomes pregnant, but it's apparent to Hosea that he's not the father. Some other man is. They have child number 1, and then a little over a year passes by, and child number 2 comes by, and it's apparent to Hosea that he's not the father of child number two either. And another year passes or so, and Gomer's pregnant again and has child number three, and it's apparent to Hosea that he's not the father of that child either. And sort of reading between the lines, my guess would be all the people kind of knew that as well because of the kind of woman that she was. Now we come to chapter 2, and the story shifts from the Hosea-Gomer metaphor to the God and my people. And so now you hear God speaking through Hosea and Hosea speaking to the people, interpreting the visual story that they've had in front of them for about four years, played out in front of them between Hosea and Gomer. Are you with me on this? He's now interpreting the story. So chapter 2 begins, uh, verse 2, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Now, what, he's, what God is saying here is, I'm, I once was the husband of the nation, and the nation was my bride. But that's no more. She's left me. The nation left me. Let her remo remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Uh, when she went pursuing after other men... Uh, in one sense, uh, you would say that was sin, and it was adultery, it sure was. But it wasn't just sin because of what happened to her, but what happened to him, to God. Listen again what, she's, what he says. Let her remove, remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness. You hear something of the heart of God, a broken heart? My own people. Why did they do this? Why did they leave me? If you've ever had someone in your dating life leave you, that's something of what you can read here and what, what he's saying here. Verse 3, Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Now, as you're going through here, God is going to, to do something. He's going to go to work. He's not going to sit by and, and let this happen. Though somewhere on their honeymoon between God and the people, she said, uh, she said you know, I'm going to go out for a little bit and, uh, and never came back. How's that for a fun honeymoon? 
What would you do if that happened? You found out your wife had been unfaithful numerous times. Most of us would get an attorney, file for divorce. Fine. You want to go that way? Go. Good luck with that. That's not what God does. He says, something needs to be done about that. I'm going to work. Now, what would, what would God do to, to, to bring her back? Verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after, she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and water, my wool, linen, oil, and drink. <clears throat> now here, the metaphor comes together simultaneously. That's what Gomer had done. I'll go after my lovers because of all the goodies they're giving me. Apparently, a couple of the guys that she was seeing had some money. And boy, she liked that. Being married to a prophet or a pastor or a Christian challenge family. But wow, this guy, he's making some money. And she was liking this. And the metaphor is exact because the people thought the same thing. Something of we're not getting the life that we thought we were going to get, the blessings that we thought Jehovah was going to give to us. So to heck with him, we're going to find some way to make that happen. And off they went. Verse 6, God says, Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. In other words, God is going to put up some roadblocks. He's going to make life hard. The very thing she thinks she's going to have to have to make life happen, he's going to say, uh-uh, it's not going to work. I am not going to let that happen for your benefit and for mine. What's it like when you go after what you think is going to make life work and repeatedly can't find it? The word that strikes me is futility. Now, in this sense, futility is a friend. It's a wake-up call. What am I doing? How am I think, how, how am I this, think life is going to work? Without futility, I would just keep doing the same doggone thing all my life, like Solomon did. There was a lot of futility in the book of Ecclesiastes that he ignored. Not an action item. Verse 8, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and lavished on her the silver and gold, gold which they used for Baal. Uh, again, the metaphors come together right here. God says, as the nation pursued other gods and wouldn't have me, they thought mistakenly that it was all these Baals that were providing good harvest and the gold and the treasure and the fertility of children. And God's saying, no, 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 that wasn't them. That was me. And in the same way, Gomer thought that every time she came home at 2 in the morning from her latest tryst, that there was a nice bag of, of groceries there and a cask of wine and maybe some clothes or maybe some jewelry, some flowers. And she thought mistakenly that it was her lovers. What she did not know was that it was Hosea. Showing up under the cover of darkness to give something to, his, to the companion who had betrayed him. Verse 9, God says, Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. Now when this happens to us as Christians, 
We, we say, um, why is God letting this happen? That's the wrong question. In the story, when God says, I will block her path with thorn bushes, this is for good reasons. I'm not going to let you walk off the cliff and down into this hole, 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 hole. <laughs> without doing something. Verse 10, I will now expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. What's going to happen is he's going to let her go only so far to where she makes an idiot of herself. Where, where she, the shame of what she's doing becomes public in a way that rattles her, that, that finally catches her, that shakes her, that may have the opportunity to bring her to repentance. And then if you think all these things are mean, if you still think that God is being mean here, listen to the last part of this verse. No one, no one, no one will take her out of my hands. What do you hear there? You hear someone who, is, who loves her so much in spite of what she's become that he is going to fight for her no matter what her response is. He will continue to love her because of her, not because of what she'd done. Does anybody else really love me like that? I'm hard-pressed to come up with very many people on that list. Wow. Verse 11. I will stop all her celebrations. Now he's speaking to the nations, her, to the nation. Her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. He is going to disrupt her life. <laughs> disrupt. Uh, understatement here. I will punish her for the day she burnt incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. And then here's another thing if you think God's being mean. Notice what he says. But me, me, she forgot. Again, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody that you loved and you maybe thought you were going to get married to someday and something happened to that and this person left you, and they just kind of seem to go on their merry way. There's something of that in here. But me, she forgot. Forgot. Yeah, heartache of God. Jeremiah 2, 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Now, if, if the fathers had been there to answer that rhetorical question they would have said, because we didn't get the blessings we thought we were going to get from Jehovah. Meaning, our self-centeredness is now justified. It's justified. Because when blessings are primary and God doesn't come through, that's his fault. The people are in about as bad a position as they can be in at this point. Verse 14. 
Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Now, when somebody has betrayed me, and maybe when somebody's betrayed you, uh, sometimes I'm tempted to give them a piece of my mind, if not the whole thing. Or at a minimum, I find distance pretty, pretty well. You want to be that way? Fine, go, go ahead. That's not God. I'm going to, and what a rich word this is, allure. He's going to woo. He's in romantic mode here with somebody who clearly doesn't deserve it, who clearly had it once and said, I don't need that. No thanks, not good enough. I'm going to allure her. What is it he's after? I think what he's, what he's saying here is, I want to restore her thirst for me. I want to get, get her to a place where there's thirst in her heart, where she's dry, where she's hungry. Hunger is not a problem to solve. Hunger is a doorway to enter. When I, when I feel hungry, I, I, I get something to eat. When we feel empty, what God's trying to do, I think, and that is to make us hungry for him. When we're lonely, we, we usually think of loneliness as a problem to solve. Uh, not really. Loneliness is a doorway. Loneliness is a doorway back to him. Lord, I long for something that no human being can meet in my life. I long for you. Loneliness is my friend. Like futility is. And like emptiness is. Because it's a doorway back to where I should be in the first place. I'm just so spiritually dry. Good. That's a doorway. To get me to thirst for God. More than I have before. These are not problems to solve. They're doorways to walk through. God wants to bring her through these doorways. Then she will say, verse 7, I will go back to my husband as at, as at first, for then I was better off than now. Uh, what, what he hopes she'll say is, uh, I used to think blessings were primary, but now I get it. Blessings are secondary. Okay, I get that now. Verse 14, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. What happens in the desert? Anybody ever taken this southern route over to Texas before? On I-10? Desolate is the word I think of. Oh, look! There's a cactus. What happens in the desert? When God takes us into the desert, what's he doing? He's removing every blessing we count as primary. such that we face loneliness, emptiness, dryness, to walk through the door back over here. And then there's several surpri big surprises in this. Uh, one of them is, um, I will speak tenderly to her. I'll speak tenderly to her. There's a friend of mine that was uh, about my age, and she had an aunt named Sarah, and Sarah was in her 80s. Uh, and uh, Sarah had been a Christian for decades. And they were driving somewhere, and Aunt Sarah was in the back, and, and my friend Rachel uh, turned to her and said uh, in the back seat, 
She said, Aunt Sarah, what's it been like to walk with Jesus for 70 years? Wonder where, wonder, what, what she's going to do with that question. Aunt Sarah, about 85 years old, said, sometimes it just seems like he wants to give me a hug. Now, a little while later, well, Sarah's, Sarah's uh, husband had died a few years before, and a little while later, Sarah uh, came down with some illness. They didn't know what it was. They put her in the hospital. Uh, and after the first round of tests, it looked pretty serious. And so they called all of Sarah's children and grandchildren to come. And they're all in the hospital room. And Sarah's laying in the, in the hospital bed with their eyes closed. And, and out in the hallway, it was near Christmas, there was a church group there that were singing Christmas carols in the hallway of the hospital. And they were singing Joy to the World. Uh, when this happened, Rachel said, Suddenly, Sarah, who'd been sitting back with her eyes closed, not communicating at all, everybody else kind of murmuring to themselves, she sat up in bed, and she opened her eyes, and she said, Raymond, which was her husband's name, is that you? And her daughter said to her, Sarah, Mom, are you going to, to see Raymond? And she said, after I first see Jesus. She laid back down and died before she woke up again. I wonder if there's something in that story that God is trying to build in all of us. Something precious there. No, no, no. Blessings are first. That, that's, that's where it's really at. That's, I want over here. Verse 15, Therefore I will give her back her vineyard, and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Here's the second surprise. You would think that, that uh, God would say to the nation, uh, uh, you guys are a bunch of losers, but I'm going to take you back and put you on probation. We'll see what you can do. Maybe you can get your act together. But that's not what he says. He says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What's the valley of Achor? The valley of Achor uh, is the valley of trouble. It's the place where Achan... In the book of Joshua, uh, stole some things he shouldn't have stolen, taken them for themselves, lied, hidden them, and uh, the whole nation suffered as a, as a result of, of his. They called that place the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. And God takes that metaphor, applies it to the people, to Gomer and the nation, and says, I'm going to take the Valley of Trouble and make it a door of hope. I'll take you from this side of the stage over here. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When do we do that? I think we do that. We seek him with all our heart when our heart is empty and when our heart uh, is lonely. When we're discouraged. And in a sense, again, I hope you hear me correctly here. In a small sense, these are problems to solve. But, but in the redemptive sense, there are doors to walk through. I am married to the most wonderful woman I've ever known. We will have our 40th anniversary next, uh, next summer. But she would tell you, and I would tell you, uh, that, that putting each other first is a really, really bad idea. She works hard at being a great wife. I work hard at being a great husband. But that's not going to do anything for her soul. 
And no matter how good a wife she is, that's not going to do anything for my soul. This is not the life of... The life of Gomer is not going to work. This third surprise here. There she will sing as in the days of her youth. As in the day she came up out of Egypt. If it was me and I was Gomer or the nation... I would have come back, head hanged down, sulking. I know I've been a spiritual screw-up, but you'll take me back, I guess. And maybe somehow I'll claw my way back into your good graces, even though I don't deserve it. That's not what God wants. Don't you get it? You will sing because you're finally home with me. And I'm in relationship with you. And you finally are centered and anchored in a love that, that only I can give and that your soul was designed for. And when you turn to me, you bring me great pleasure. I want to sing too. And there are several verses where God does, in the Bible, where God does sing over his people. The relationship getting life. Is that one of your identities? Now the story ends in chapter 3, although the book of Hosea goes on. Oh, I forgot my prop. The loser speaker here. Gomer. The relationship getting identity. Now, the story in chapter 3 uh, is a cool story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. God comes to Hosea. We've moved now from the nation and, and, and God and the nation to back to Hosea and Gomer. And he goes back to Hosea and he says, um, I want you to go. It's time to go get Gomer and bring her home. But by this time, Gomer has gotten herself in trouble. And I'm, I'm reading between the lines here because we don't have really much to go on on this scene. But Gomer is now being sold as a slave. Now, how would that happen? Well, in that, in that time, uh, if you went in debt, you were either imprisoned or you sold yourself into bondage for a period of time. And my guess, reading between the lines, is that's what happened. She became accustomed to a pretty rich lifestyle, uh, with all these big roller guys, and when he, all these guys ended up evaporating, she uh, maxed out, had maxed out all her credit cards in town, and everybody wanted their, <coughs> their payment, and uh, she couldn't do it. And the law came after her. What's she going to do? She can go to prison. Didn't want to do that. She can sell herself into slavery. And so the scene uh, shifts to a slave auction, and I'm guessing there were probably about 25 men who were there, the slave auction, and one by one, they bring out the, the people to, to uh, sell off. <clears throat> and um, Hosea gets into the, sort of the back of the crowd there. And they bring out one, two, three, and finally they bring out Gomer. Now, it would not be unusual for her to be naked in that particular scene. But even if she wasn't, imagine the shame that she would have. Because all of those men knew her. And she knew they knew her. 
and they knew she knew them. And here she was in front of them in debt, utter failure, being auctioned off like a donkey or a horse. And I can just picture her, just everything caved in. She cannot look up. What do I hear for a bid? Do I hear three shekels of silver? Three. Do I hear four? Four. Do I hear five? Five. I can just imagine she just, what have I done? Where is my life gone? How could I have been so foolish? How am I? Six. Seven. And then just start weeping. Just. <laughs> Nine. Ten. And then she hears a familiar voice. Eleven. It's Hosea. Why would he come? Why would he come now? At the worst, the lowest of, of where I've been. Twelve. Thirteen. Fourteen. Fifteen. Fifteen going once. Fifteen going twice. Fifteen in the latex of barley. Going once. Going twice. Sold to Hosea, the prophet, for fifteen shekels of silver and a latex of barley. I can just imagine the men going, Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Uh-huh. I got that backwards. Hosea, undeterred, makes his way up through the crowd. Imagine taking his blanket and covering up his girl and whispering in her ear, let's go home. Let's go home. It's a picture of the heart of God for you. A little while later, a little while before I wrote, we'll finish with this, I wrote a poem about this story. And we'll close with this poem. Hosea the prophet married the village whore. And to three lesser dads, three children Gomer bore. I wanted my people in sad Gomer to see, like Gomer, that they were adulteresses to me. She did what she wanted with men running around. They leave me food and gifts in secret at sundown. She didn't know that she'd been left and abandoned. T'was Hosea who gave gifts to his old companion. Tis anyone can love that someone who loves you. No real merit there, even monkeys can do. But to love us like God after vile betrayal? Why, that's God's story 
in Hosea's portrayal. So Gomer hit bottom, a debtor she became, off to the slave auction, sold naked and in shame. But the winning bid came from Hosea himself. She'd found the love she'd trashed, now loved for herself. Can I be loved again after you I abandoned? In God's heart you'll find love to be his companion. Love is most clearly seen at Christ's crucifixion. You don't have to wait years for the next slave auction. Let's pray together. Father, how easily and without hardly even knowing it, we turn to almost anything else except you for our deepest needs to be met. And today, as we heard in Ian's story, my story, Gomer's story, and the people's story, oftentimes we turn to other people in the hope that they can do for us what only, 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 only you can do. Help us not to be surprised, all that surprised, when we find ourselves being Gomer. And help use the, 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 the walls that you put up in our life, oftentimes of loneliness, emptiness, dryness, as doors, doorways to bring us back to you. The longing for you, the hunger for you, and a thirst for you.